Chapter Three of the Invasion by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three, Battle of Epping. The following is extracted from the Times of fifteenth September. Epping, fourteenth September, evening. I have spent a busy day, but have no very important news to record. After the repulse of the German troops attacking Lord Byfield's retreating army, and the arrival of our sorely harassed troops behind the Epping entrenchments, we saw no more of the enemy that evening. All through the night, however, there was the sound of occasional heavy gun-firing from the eastward. I have taken up my quarters at the Bell, an inn at the south end of the village, from the back of which I can get a good view to the northwest for from two to four miles. Beyond that distance the high ridge known as Epping Upland limits the prospect. The whole terrain is cut up into fields of various sizes and dotted all over with trees. Close by is a lofty red-brick water-tower which has been utilized by Sir Stapleton Forsyth as a signal station. Away about a mile to my left front, as I look from the back of the bell, a big block of buildings stands prominently out on a grassy spur of high ground. This is Copt Hall and Little Copt Hall. Both mansions have been transformed into fortresses which, while offering little or no resistance to artillery fire, will yet form a tough nut for the Germans to crack should they succeed in getting through our entrenchments at that point. Beyond I can just see a corner of a big earthwork that has been built to strengthen the defense line, and which has been christened Fort Obelisk from a farm of that name near which it is situated. There is another smaller redoubt on the slope just below this hostelry, and I can see the gunners busy about the three big khaki-painted guns which are mounted in it. There are a six-inch and two four-point-seven-inch guns, I believe. This morning our cavalry, consisting of a regiment of yeomanry and some mounted infantry, who had formed a portion of Lord Byfield's force, went out to reconnoitre towards the north and east. They were not away long, as they were driven back in every direction in which they attempted to advance by superior forces of the enemy's cavalry, who seemed to swarm everywhere. Later on, I believe, some of the German riders became so venturesome that several squadrons exposed themselves to the fire of the big guns in the fort at Skip's Corner and suffered pretty severely for their temerity. The firing continued throughout the morning away to eastward. At noon I thought I would run down and see if I could find anything out about it. I therefore mounted my car and ran off in that direction. I found that there was a regular duel going on between our guns at Kelvedon Hatch and some heavy siege-guns or howitzers that the enemy had got in the neighborhood of the high ground about Norton Heath, only about three thousand yards distant from our entrenchments. They did not appear to have done us much damage, but neither in all probability did we hurt them very much, since our gunners were unable to exactly locate the hostile guns. When I got back to Epping, about three o'clock, I found the wide single street full of troops, they were those who had come in the previous afternoon with Lord Byfield, and who, having been allowed to rest till midday after their long fighting march, were now being told off to their various sections of the defense line. The guard regiments were allocated to the northernmost position between Fort Royston and Fort Skips. 
the rifles would go to Copt Hall, and the sea force to form the nucleus of a central reserve of militia and volunteers which was being established just north of Gaines Park. Epping itself and the contiguous entrenchments were confided to the Leinster Regiment, which alone of Sir Jacob Stollenbosch's brigade had escaped capture, supported by two militia battalions. The field batteries were distributed under shelter of the woods on the south, east, and northeast of the town. During the afternoon the welcome news arrived that the remainder of Lord Byfield's command from Baldock, Royston, and Elmden had safely arrived within our entrenchments at Enfield and New Barnet. We may now hope that what with regulars, militia, volunteers, and the new levies, our lines are fully and effectively manned, and will suffice to stay the further advance of even such a formidable host as is that at the disposal of the renowned von Kronhelm. It is reported, too, from Brentwood, that great progress has already been made in reorganizing and distributing the broken remnants of the first and fifth armies that got back to that town after the great and disastrous battle of Chelmsford. Victorious as they were, the Germans must also have suffered severely, which may give us some breathing time before their next onslaught. The following are extracts from a diary picked up by a daily telegraph correspondent lying near the body of a German officer after the fighting in the neighborhood of Enfield Chase. It is presumed that the officer in question was Major Splitberger of the Kaiser Franz Guard Grenadier Regiment, since that was the name written inside the cover of the diary. From enquiries that have since been instituted, it is probable that the deceased officer was employed on the staff of the general commanding the Fourth Corps of the invading army, though it would seem from the contents of his diary that he saw also a good deal of the operations of the Tenth Corps. Our readers will be able to gather from it the general course of the enemy's strategy and tactics during the time immediately preceding the most recent disasters which have befallen our brave defenders. The first extract is dated September 15, and was written somewhere north of Epping. September 15. So far, the bold strategy of our commander-in-chief in pushing the greater part of the Tenth Corps directly to the west immediately after our victory at Chelmsford, has been amply justified by results. Although we just missed cutting off Lord Byfield and a large portion of his command at Harlow, we gained a good foothold inside the British defences north of Epting, and I don't think it will be long before we have very much improved our position here. The Fourth Corps arrived at Harlow about midday yesterday in splendid condition, after their long march from Newmarket, and the residue of the Tenth joined us at about the same time. As there is nothing like keeping the enemy on the move, no time was lost in preparing to attack him at the very earliest opportunity. As soon as it was dark, the Fourth Corps got its heavy guns and howitzers into position along the ridge above Epping Upland, and sent the greater portion of its field batteries forward to a position from which they were within effective range of the British fortifications at Skip's Corner. The Ninth Corps, which had arrived from Chelmsford that evening, also placed its field artillery in a similar position, from which its fire crossed that of the Fourth Corps. This corps also provided the assaulting troops. The Tenth Corps, which had been engaged all day on Thursday, was held in reserve. The howitzers on Epping Upland opened fire with petrol shell on the belt of woods that lies immediately in rear of the position to be attacked, 
and, with the assistance of a strong westerly wind, succeeded in setting them on fire and cutting off the most northerly section of the British defences from reinforcement. This was soon after midnight. The conflagration not only did us this service, but it is supposed so attracted the attention of the partially trained soldiers of the enemy that they did not observe the Ninth Corps massing for the assault. We then plastered their trenches with shrapnel to such an extent that they did not dare to show a finger above them and finally carried the northern corner by assault. To give the enemy their due, they fought well, but we outnumbered them five to one, and it was impossible for them to resist the onslaught of our well-trained soldiers. News came today that the Saxons have been making a demonstration before Brentwood with a view of keeping the British employed down there so that they cannot send any reinforcements up here. At the same time, they have been steadily bombarding Kelvedon Hatch from Norton Heath. We hear, too, that the Guard Corps have got down south, and that their front stretches from Boxbourne to Little Burke Hampstead, while Frulich's cavalry division is in front of them spread all over the country, from the River Lee away to the westward, having driven the whole of the British outlying troops and patrols under the shelter of their entrenchments. Once we succeed in rolling up the enemy's troops in this quarter, it will not be long before we are entering London. September 16. Fighting went on all yesterday in the neighborhood of Skip's Corner. We have taken the redoubt at North Weald Bassett and driven the English back into the belt of burnt woodland which they now hold along its northern edge. All day long, too, our big guns hidden away behind the groves and woods above Epping Upland, poured their heavy projectiles on Epping and its defences. We set the village on fire three times, but the British contrived to extinguish the blaze on each occasion. I fancy Epping itself will be our next point of attack. September 17. We are still progressing. Fighting is now all but continuous. How long it may last, I have no idea. Probably there will be no suspension of the struggle until we are actually masters of the metropolis. We took advantage of the darkness to push forward our men to within three thousand yards of the enemy's line, placing them as far as possible under cover of the numerous copses, plantations, and hedgerows which cover the face of this fertile country. At four a.m. the general ordered his staff to assemble at Latin Park, where he had established his headquarters. He unfolded to us the general outline of the attack, which he now announced was to commence at six precisely. I thought myself that it was a somewhat inopportune time, as we should have the rising sun right in our eyes, but I imagined that the idea was to have as much daylight as possible before us, for although we had employed a night attack against Skip's Corner, and successfully too, yet the general feeling in our army has always been opposed to operations of this kind. The possible gain is, I think, in no way commensurable with the probable risk of panic and disorder. The principal objective was the village of Epping itself, but simultaneous attacks were to be carried out against Copt Hall, Fort Obelisk to the west of it, and Fort Royston about a mile north of the village. The Ninth Corps was to cooperate by a determined attempt to break through the English lining the burnt strip of woodland and to assault the latter fort in rear. It was necessary to carry out both these flanking attacks in order to prevent the main attack from being enfiladed from right and left. 
At 5.30 we mounted and rode off to Rye Hill, about a couple of miles distance, from which the general intended to watch the progress of the operations. The first rays of the rising sun were filling the eastern sky with a pale light as we cantered off, the long wooded ridge on which the enemy had his position standing up in a misty silhouette against the growing day. As we topped Rye Hill I could see the thickly massed lines of our infantry crouching behind every hedge, bank, or ridge, their rifle barrels here and there twinkling in the feeble rays of the early sun, their shadows long and attenuated behind them. Epping, with its lofty red water tower, was distinctly visible on the opposite side of the valley, and it is probable that the movement of the general's cavalcade of officers, with the escort, attracted the attention of the enemy's lookouts, for halfway down the hillside on their side of the valley a blinding violent white flash blazed out, and a big shell came screaming along just over our heads, the loud boom of a heavy gun following fast on its heels. Almost simultaneously another big projectile hurtled up from the direction of Fort Obelisk and burst among our escort of Uhlans with a deluge of livid flame and thick volumes of greenish-brown smoke. It was a telling shot, for no fewer than six horses and their riders lay in a shattered heap on the ground. At six, precisely, our guns fired a salvo directed on Epping Village. This was the preconcerted signal for attack, and before the echoes of the thunderous discharge had finished reverberating over the hills and forests, our front lines had sprung to their feet and were moving at a racing pace towards the enemy. For a moment the British seemed stupefied by the suddenness of the advance. A few rifle shots crackled out here and there, but our men had thrown themselves to the ground after their first rush before the enemy seemed to wake up. But there was no mistake about it when they did. Seldom have I seen such a concentrated fire. Gun, pom-pom, machine-gun, and rifle blazed out from right to left along more than three miles of entrenchments. A continuous lightning-like line of fire poured forth from the British trenches which still lay in shadow. I could see the bullets raising perfect sandstorms in places, the little pom-pom shells sparkling about all over our prostrate men, and the shrapnel bursting all along their front producing perfect swaths of white smoke which hung low down in the still air in the valley. But our artillery was not idle. The field guns pushed well forward, showered shrapnel upon the British position, the howitzer shells hurtled over our heads on their way to the enemy in constantly increasing numbers as the ranges were verified by the trial shots, while a terrible and unceasing reverberation from the northeast told of the supporting attack made by the Ninth and Tenth Corps upon the blackened woods held by the English. The concussion of the terrific cannonade that now resounded from every quarter was deafening. The air seemed to pulse within one's ears, and it was difficult to hear one's nearest neighbor speak. Down in the valley our men appeared to be suffering severely. Every forward move of the attacking lines left a perfect litter of prostrate forms behind it and for some time I felt very doubtful in my own mind if the attack would succeed. Glancing to the right, however, I was encouraged to see the progress that had been made by the troops detailed for the assault on Copt Hall and Obelisk Fort, and seeing this it occurred to me that it was not intended to push the central attack on Epping home before its flank had been secured from molestation from this direction. 
copped hall itself stood out on a bare down almost like some medieval castle backed by the dark masses of forest while to the west of it the slopes of fort obelisk could barely be distinguished so flat were they and so well screened by greenery but its position was clearly defined by the clouds of dust smoke and debris constantly thrown up by our heavy high explosive shells while ever and anon there came a dazzling flash from it followed by a detonation that made itself heard even above the rolling of the cannonade as one of its big seven point five guns was discharged the roar of their huge projectiles too as they tore through the air was easily distinguishable none of our impalments were proof against them and they did our heavy batteries a great deal of damage before they could be silenced to cut a long story short we captured epping after a tough fight and by noon were in possession of everything north of the forest including the war-scarred ruins that now represented the mansion of copped hall and from which our pom-poms and machine-guns were firing into fort obelisk but our losses had been awful as for the enemy they could hardly have suffered less severely for though partially protected by their entrenchments our artillery fire must have been utterly annihilating september eighteen fighting went on all last night the english holding desperately on to the edge of the forest our people pressing them close and working round their right flank when day broke the general situation was pretty much like this on our left the ninth corps were in possession of the fort at took hill and a redoubt that lay between it and skip's fort two batteries were bombarding a redoubt lower down in the direction of stanford rivers which was also subjected to a cross-fire from their howitzers near ongar as for the english their position was an unenviable one from copped hall as soon as we have cleared the edge of the forest of the enemy's sharpshooters we shall be able to take their entrenchments in reverse all the way to waltham abbey they have on the other hand an outlying fort about a mile or two north of the latter place which gave us some trouble with its heavy guns yesterday and which it is most important that we should gain possession of before we advance further the guard corps on the western side of the river lee is now i hear in sight of the enemy's lines and is keeping them busily employed though without pushing its attack home for the present at daybreak this morning i was inepting and saw the beginning of the attack on the forest it is rumoured that large reinforcements have reached the enemy from london but as these must be merely scratch soldiers they will do them more harm than good in their cramped position the tenth corps had got a dozen batteries in position a little to the eastward of the village and at six o'clock these guns opened a tremendous fire upon the northeast corner of the forest under cover of which their infantry deployed down in the low ground about coopersall and advanced to the attack petrol shells were not used against the forest as von kronhelm had given orders that it was not to be burned if it could possibly be avoided the shrapnel was very successful in keeping down the fire from the edge of the trees but our troops received a good deal of damage from infantry and guns that were posted to the east of the forest on a hill near thaden boy but about seven o'clock these troops were driven from their position by a sudden flank attack made by the ninth corps from thaden mount von kleppen followed this up by putting some of his own guns up there which were able to fire on the edge of the forest after those of the tenth corps had been masked by the close advance of their infantry 
To make a long story short, by ten the whole of the forest, east of the London Road, as far south as the crossroads near Jack's Hill, was in our hands. In the meantime, the Fourth Corps had made itself master of Fort Obelisk, and our gunners were hard at work mounting guns in it with which to fire on the outlying fort at Monkham's Hall. Von Kleppen was at Copt Hall about this time, and with him I found General von Vilberg commanding the Tenth Corps in close consultation. The once fine mansion had been almost completely shot away down to its lower story. A large portion of this, however, was still fairly intact, having been protected to a certain extent by the masses of masonry that had fallen around it, and also by the thick ramparts of earth that the English had built up against its exposed side. Our men were still firing from its loopholes at the edge of the woods, which were only about twelve hundred yards distant, and from which bullets were constantly whistling in by every window. Two of our battalions had dug themselves in in the wooden park surrounding the house, and were also exchanging fire with the English at comparatively close ranges. They had, I was told, made more than one attempt to rush the edge of the forest, but had been repulsed by rifle fire on each occasion. Away to the west I could see for miles, and even distinguish our shells bursting all over the enemy's fort at Monkham's Hall, which was being subjected to a heavy bombardment by our guns on the high ground to the north of it. About eleven, Froelich's cavalry brigade, whose presence was no longer required in front of the garden troops, passed through Epping, going southeast. It is generally supposed that it is either to attack the British at Brentwood in the rear, or, which I think is more probable, to intimidate the raw levies by its presence between them and London, and to attack them in flank should they attempt to retreat. Just after eleven another battalion arrived at Copt Hall from Epping, and orders were given that the English position along the edge of the forest was to be taken at all cost. Just before the attack began there was a great deal of firing somewhere in the interior of the forest, presumably between the British and the advanced troops of the Tenth Corps. However this may have been, it was evident that the enemy were holding our part of the forest much less strongly, and our assault was entirely successful with but small loss of men. Once in the woods the superior training and discipline of our men told heavily in their favor. While the mingled mass of volunteers and raw free-shooters, of which the bulk of their garrison was composed, got utterly disorganized and out of hand under the severe strain on them that was imposed by the difficulties of wood-fighting, and hindered and broke up the regular units, our people were easily kept well in hand, and drove the enemy steadily before them without a single check. The rattle of rifle and machine-gun was continuous through all the leafy dells and glades of the wood, but by two o'clock practically the whole forest was in the hands of our Tenth Corps. It was then the turn of the Fourth Corps, who in the meantime, far from being idle, had massed a large number of their guns at Copt Hall, from which, aided by the fire from Fort Obelisk, the enemy's lines were subjected to a bombardment that rendered them absolutely untenable, and we could see company after company making their way to Waltham Abbey. At three the order for a general advance on Waltham Abbey was issued. As the enemy seemed to have few, if any, guns at this place, it was determined to make use of some of the new armored motors that accompanied the army. Von Kronhelm, who was personally directing the operations from Copt Hall, 
had caused each corps to send its own motors to Epping so that we had something like thirty at our disposal. These quaint grey monsters came down through the forest and advanced on Epping by two parallel roads, one passing by the south of Worley's Park, the other being the main road from Epping. It was a weird sight to see these shore-going armor-clads flying down upon the enemy. They got within eight hundred yards of the houses, but the enemy contrived to block their further advance by various obstacles which they placed on the roads. There was about an hour's desperate fighting in the village. The old abbey church was set on fire by a stray shell, the conflagration spreading to the neighboring houses, and both British and Germans being too busy killing each other to put it out, the whole village was shortly in flames. The British were finally driven out of it and across the river by five o'clock. In the meantime, every heavy gun that could be got to bear was directed on the fort at Monkham's Hall, which, during the afternoon, was also made the target for the guns of the Guard Corps, which cooperated with us by attacking the lines at Cheshunt and assisting us with its artillery fire from the opposite side of the river. By nightfall, the fort was a mass of smoking earth over which fluttered our black cross flag and the front of the fourth corps stretched from this to gilwell park four miles nearer london the tenth corps was in support in the forest behind us and forming also a front to cover our flank reaching from chingford to buckhurst hill the enemy was quite demoralized in this direction and showed no indication of resuming the engagement as for the ninth corps its advanced troops were at Lambourne End, in close communication with General Furlick, who had established his headquarters at Havering, at the Bower. We have driven a formidable wedge right into the middle of the carefully elaborate system of defence arranged by the British generals, and it will now be a miracle if they can prevent our entry into the capital. We have not, of course, effected this without a great loss in killed and wounded, but you can't make puddings without breaking eggs, and in the end a bold and forward policy is more economical of life and limb than attempting to avoid necessary losses as our present opponents did in South Africa, thereby prolonging the war to an almost indefinite period, and losing many more men by sickness and in driblets than would have been the case if they had followed a more determined line in their strategy and tactics. Just before the sun sank behind the masses of new houses which the monster city spreads out to the northward, I got orders to carry a dispatch to General von Vilberg, who was stated to be at Chingford on our extreme left. I went by the forest road, as the parallel one near the river was in most parts under fire from the opposite bank. He had established his headquarters at the Forester's Inn, which stands high up on a wooded mound, and from which he could see a considerable distance and keep in touch with his various signal stations. He took my dispatch, telling me that I should have a reply to take back later on. In the meantime, said he, if you will fall in with my staff, you will have an opportunity of seeing the first shots fired into the biggest city in the world. So saying, he went out to his horse, which was waiting outside, and we started off down the hill with a great clatter. After winding about through a somewhat intricate network of roads and by-lanes, we arrived at Old Chingford Church, which stands upon a species of headland, rising boldly up above the flat and, in some places, marshy land, to the westward. 
Close to the church was a battery of four big howitzers, the gunners grouped around them silhouetted darkly against the blood-red sky. From up here the vast city, spreading out to the south and west, lay like a grey, sprawling octopus, spreading out ray-like to the northward, every rise and ridge being topped with a bristle of spires and chimney-pots. An ominous silence seemed to brood over the teeming landscape, broken only at intervals by the dull booming of guns from the northward. Long swaths of cloud and smoke lay athwart the dull furnace-like glow of the sunset, and lights were beginning to sparkle out all over the vast expanse which lay before us mirrored here and there in the canals and rivers that ran almost at our feet. Now, said von Wilberg at length, commence fire. One of the big guns gave tongue with a roar that seemed to make the church tower quiver above us. Another and another followed in succession, their big projectiles hurtling and humming through the quiet evening air on their errands of death and destruction in I know not what quarter of the crowded suburbs. It seemed to me a cruel and needless thing to do, but I am told that it was done with the set purpose of arousing such a feeling of alarm and insecurity in the East End that the mob might try to interfere with any further measures for defence that the British military authorities might undertake. I got my dispatch soon afterwards, and returned with it to the general who was spending the night at Copt Hall. There, too, I got myself a shakedown, and slumbered soundly till the morning. September 19. Today we have, I think, finally broken down all organized military opposition in the field, though we may expect a considerable amount of street fighting before reaping the whole fruits of our victories. At daybreak we began by turning a heavy fire from every possible quarter on the wooded island formed by the river and various backwaters just north of Waltham Abbey. The poplar-clad islet, which was full of the enemy's troops, became absolutely untenable under this concentrated fire, and they were compelled to fall back over the river. Our engineers soon began their bridging operations behind the wood, and our infantry, crossing over, got close up to a redoubt on the further side and took it by storm. Again we were able to take a considerable section of the enemy's lines in reverse, and as they were driven out by our fire, against which they had no protection, the guard troops advanced and by ten were in possession of Cheshon. In the meanwhile, covered by the fire of the guns belonging to the Ninth and Tenth Corps, other bridges had been thrown across the Lee at various points between Waltham and Chingford, and in another hour the crossing began. The enemy had no good positions for his guns, and seemed to have very few of them. He had pinned his faith upon the big weapons he had placed in his entrenchments, and those were now of no further use to him. He had lost a number of his field guns, either from damage or capture, and with our more numerous artillery firing from the high ground on the eastern bank of the river, we were always able to beat down any attempt he made to reply to their fire. We had a day of fierce fighting before us. There was no maneuvering. We were in a wilderness of scattered houses and occasional streets, in which the enemy contested our progress foot by foot. Edmonton, Edenfield Walsh, and Waltham Cross were quickly captured. Our artillery commanded them too well to allow the British to make a successful defence. But Enfield itself, lying along a steepish ridge, on which the British had assembled what artillery they could scrape together, 
cost us dearly. The streets of this not-too-lovely suburban town literally ran with blood when at last we made our way into it. A large part of it was burnt to ashes, including, unfortunately, the ancient palace of Queen Elizabeth and the venerable and enormous cedar tree that overhung it. The British fell back to a second position they had apparently prepared along a parallel ridge farther to the westward, their left being between us and New Barnet and their right at Southgate. We did not attempt to advance farther today, but contented ourselves in reorganizing our forces and preparing against a possible counterattack by barricading and entrenching the farther edge of Enfield Ridge. September 20. We are falling in immediately, as it has been decided to attack the British position at once. Already the artillery duel is in progress. I must continue tonight, as my horse is at the door. The writer, however, never lived to complete his diary, having been shot halfway up the green slope he had observed the day before. End of chapter 3. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.